Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta, thanking you for being with me today as we celebrate the feast of St. Anthony the Abbot, one of the Desert Fathers. And again, I, I think most of us have heard the phrase, the Desert Fathers, and but actually, we don't know very much about them. We do have their wisdom, we do have their teachings, and we're going to take time with Father Philip Bochansky to take a look at the Desert Fathers and what we can, what we can learn uh, from their, their very pithy phrases and their uh, guidance. So that's coming up uh, about the second segment of today's program. Uh, Dr. Greg Popchek joins me at the top of the hour. We, it's it's a project called Social Science Apologetics. And anthropologists at the University of Oxford have discovered what they believe to be seven universal moral rules. Yesterday I was talking about this, uh, that there's a, a, a body of moral insight that seems to be common to humanity. It's universal. And so we're going to talk with Greg Popchek about uh, these seven universal moral rules, rules and how they connect. Uh, how they reflect natural law. So that's coming up. In the second hour, I want to share with you an interview I did a while back with uh, N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is arguably the most respected uh, conservative New Testament scholar uh, in the English-speaking world today. Uh, He's also been the uh, Bishop of Durham in the Anglican uh, Church. So he's has a very great interest, not only, of course, in New Testament scholarship, but how it meets the people of God, how, in fact, it deals with church life. So we're going to go and talk with uh, Dr. Wright about the New Testament in its world, its social context. We'll take a look at the Hebrew background. We'll take a look at the uh, Roman background. Uh, We'll take a look at how the Gospels uh, bring up uh, material which is unique uh, to their own perspective. So that's coming up. Uh, that'll be in the second hour of today's program. But first, what I'd like to do is just kick off with the headlines. Thank you, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Wednesday, January 17th. It's the Feast of St. Anthony the Abbot. And today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. The central U.S. is bracing for more bitter cold. The National Weather Service says the Arctic cold front will be plunging into the U.S. starting today and could bring more record-setting cold temperatures. Forecasters say the polar plunge could extend as far south as Florida, with lows dipping into the 20s and even teens in some places. Wind chill temperatures could drop below zero in some parts of the south. It's expected that the cold front could also bring more snow to cities from St. Louis to Boston. This comes as an ice storm in the Pacific Northwest has left thousands without power in Oregon. 
Writer E. Jean Carroll took the stand today in the defamation damages trial against Donald Trump. Last year, a jury found the former president liable for sexually abusing and defaming Carroll, and she was awarded $5 million in damages. The second trial involves public comments that Trump made about Carroll while he was president and after last year's verdict. This morning, Carol said she's testifying to stop Trump from telling lies about me and that Trump's accusation of her being a liar led to threats online that ended the world she had been living in. And even the Terminator has trouble getting through customs sometimes. TMZ says Arnold Schwarzenegger was detained for three hours over a luxury watch he's expected to auction off in Austria to benefit one of his nonprofits. Schwarzenegger agreed to prepay potential taxes on the watch, but a credit card machine failed for an hour, and an ATM machine had too low of a cash withdrawal limit. From the AveMariaRadio.net News Desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thank you for being with me. We uh, return to our feature, Social Science Apologetics, where we take a look at some of the findings in the world of the social sciences that confirm what we know uh, as part of the Catholic faith. With me right now, Dr. Gregory Popcheck. He's also executive director of Pastoral Solutions Institute, the author of more than a dozen books. And daily, you hear Greg and his wife, Lisa, co-hosting More to Life on Ave Maria Radio and EWTN. You can follow his work at CatholicCounselors.com. Greg, good to have you with me. Great to be here, Al. Thank you. One of the things that uh, I, when I was writing Dangerous to the Faith, I did a chapter on relativism, and in that chapter I came across uh, a work by Donald Brown, University of California, uh, Santa Barbara, where he found over 300 unvarying patterns of behavior, including moral beliefs, uh, that comprise uh, features of uh, just about every culture, society, language that he's been able to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, have we moved away from the old cultural relativism of Margaret Mead, uh, and now we are looking at uh, a certain type of universal morality? Well, that is what a new study uh, by Oxford University would suggest. Um, I think our culture, very much so, is seeing um, kind of a heyday of moral relativism and the idea that truth and morality is what we say it is. Uh, you know, traditionally, that's called co- social contract theory. Basically, the idea that whatever we agree is moral will be moral, right, right. Uh, and whatever we decide is is not moral. Is, you know, we, you know, but that's just a matter of voting on it. It's not a matter of any moral absolutes or rules that are kind of built into our nature. Well, a new study by anthropologists at the University of Oxford uh, took a look at um, 60 societies uh, and looked at um, they're, they're, those societies' writings and uh, uh, teachings on moral behavior, uh, they looked over at over 600 sources, uh, comprising over 600,000 words. Wow. <laughs> uh, and out of that, they drew seven universal moral principles that every society appears to agree on with no deviations from culture to culture. How, how many features? Seven. Seven. Okay, it's a nice number. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and so, what would those be? 
Because they, well, other people have tried to draw up lists like this, or you know what are. I mean, I even think uh, Martin Seligman, who did you know positive psychology, came up with six. So tell me what these seven are. So the number one is I've got help your family. Number two, help your group. Three is divide resources fairly. Four is return favors. Uh, five, be brave. Uh, and six is respect others' property. And seven is actually defer to your superiors. Wow. Go through those again. Yeah. Uh, help your family. Mm-hmm. Help your group. Divide resources fairly. Return favors. Be brave. Respect others' property, and defer to superiors. Interesting. Um, defer to superiors. That one interests me um, mm. because th- I wonder what what is meant by that. I mean, the superiors that requires some kind of social order that you're right. aware of. I mean, is is that would would honoring your father go under you know? Uh, deferring to superiors. Yes, um, you know, so so who, who those people who are in charge of the society, whether those people are, are in charge of your you know your family or your uh, your your group, uh, the, the the social setting that you're in, uh, the the presumption being that those people are there uh, to serve the common good, and that deferring to their authority works for uh, what kind of def- goes back to one of the earlier rules of helping your group and doing what's best for your family and those kinds of things. Um, what this study? This is a this is a significant study. I mean, huge. Um, how how many years did, was it in the making? As I said, it went over several years, and it looked at sixty different societies, um, and and examined six hundred sources of moral teaching in those different societies. So this was a huge project. Yeah, I, it sounds uh, really comprehensive. What's interesting, what I thought was interesting about this, though, that that besides those seven cooperative behaviors um, that were always considered morally good, there were no examples where a society said those things were were bad in some way or that they were not good in any way, that that these were somehow hardwired into uh, people on a basic level and, and, and then expressed in the relationships within these very, very different cultures. I mean, they were looking at everything from well-established Western cultures to uh, tribal cultures. Right. Uh, in, 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 you know, the Maasai, for example, sure. the Amara people of Ethiopia. So um, there's no cultural know. diffusion of these principles. These, these prop up independently of one another. That's right. And regardless of how technologically advanced a society yeah. is or how nomadic it might be or whatever its cultural context is, these moral rules kept coming up over and over and over and over and over again. This is really a devastating blow to the idea of moral relativism. You know, I, this, I'm anxious to see what the response will be to this because in many ways I suspect that moral relativists... Um, don't really have uh, don't really first of all it's difficult to live as a relativist right I mean because relatively speaking (laughs) you expect people sorry (laughs) (laughs) you expect we all expect people to behave according to certain principles that are you know we presuppose don't you know if somebody tries to step in front of you in a line Right? right? You say, mm-hmm. wait, that's not right. That's not fair. Well, what the heck do you mean by fairness there? Why can't I step in front of you? Nobody says, well, oh, there's, 
<laughs> I don't care. I'm going to step in front of you in the line anyways because I just want to. Yeah. Everybody knows there's something wrong with that. Well, and, and you're, what you're pointing to is something that we all know, call the Catholic called natural law. Right. 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 Uh, Jay Bujashevsky has a great book. He's a philosopher. Has a great book called "Things You Can't Not Know." Right. And that's sort of how he defines natural law: the idea that there are just certain things that are wired in us that we know from from their, on a very basic level from almost the beginning of life that, that these things are bad and these things are good. And you know, traditionally, Catholics have referred to that as natural law. And, that idea of natural law has kind of taken some beating over the years, um, and, and especially you know, David Hume was a philosopher in the 18th century that, that proposed what he called the is-ought problem, mm -hmm. that said, you know, you could just because you could describe that something happens in nature doesn't mean that you can derive moral principles from right. that, and that's really the basis for this whole idea of moral relativism. But when you look at data like this, you really see the, the science stacking up behind moral universalism, the, the idea that there are moral absolutes and that natural law does uh, insinuate itself into every situation and every culture regardless of that context. Do we have examples of tribes, cultures, societies that reward things like um, um, double crossing, uh, double dealing, betraying, sure. lying? Uh, well, the, the, nothing that rewards it. In fact, uh, in, what they what they find is that uh, that every culture says that that is a bad thing to do. Right. There's there's absolutely no example where any culture says that, you know, double dealing or betraying people or not returning favors or you know, violating family obligations or not deferring to authority is is in some way good. <laughs> It is amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. <laughs> when you think that uh, this idea of uh, relativism has taken root in so many people's um, imagination, uh, again, I don't think people can live uh, a relativistic lifestyle because uh, if you get rid of the Ten Commandments, you'll establish some other commandments um, by which you must live. And um, where are they... Where do they think this study is going to go? In other words, this yeah. is something which settles a long-standing philosophical debate. Does are they willing to say that this settles a long-standing philosophical uh, debate? Yeah, actually, the, the researchers actually came out and said pretty much that. That uh, the quote from the lead author of the study says the debate between moral universalists and moral relativists have raged for centuries, but now we have some answers. People everywhere face a similar set of social problems and use a similar set of moral rules to re uh, to resolve them. Um, and 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 so I mean that's that, as I said, it's a pretty devastating blow to the idea of moral relativism. Now, where they want to go with this, what they found was that different societies may have different um, orderings of the priorities right, right. of these universal seven rules. That's right. And so they want to do additional research to sort of see what what's responsible for those variations. You know, because some groups might say, you know, helping your family is the most important moral rule, while these other six are important, but, uh, you know, maybe somehow less important. Uh, other societies will have a different ordering of these seven principles, but those seven principles are always there. So future research is going to look at why a particular culture might value one set of rules over another. Uh, but, but it's pretty well established at this point, though, that, uh, that, that there are universal moral rules that guide human behavior and social interaction regardless of your cultural context. Yeah. You know, this is something which has been known and assumed by uh, sophisticated 
uh, researchers in the in the field of missionary anthropology, um, mm. because Christian missionaries going into various cultures now for centuries have had to uh, generate a great deal of data. The Jesuits did it uh, in Canada, with one of the earliest uh, to do it. But evangelical missionaries, Catholic missionaries, have for many years uh, gathered data like this. And they've operated with the idea that there is some universal moral principles. They do recognize that they are emphasized differently. Asian cultures have certain emphases uh, that we may not have in um, in the United States or in Western Europe. But uh, again, missionaries have always presumed that there's some kind of natural law, some sort of universal moral code that people have an awareness that they don't live up to. And that, of course, is one reason they need the gospel. Uh, and well, and that's and that's where a relativist would come in and say, well, you know, that's just cultural imperialism. And so, you know, the, obviously there must be different ways of relating it. And, and this study really proves that false. Right. That, that it proves that, that what you were saying, the the assumption of those courageous missionaries, uh, w- were correct. That that people in different cultures uh, will see. Uh, these moral truths out, and uh, that 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 adhering to those moral principles consistently leads to human flourishing and social flourishing as well. Now, was this just published? Yes, it okay. just came out um, in the journal Current Anthropology. The brand new issue there. So All right, good, well, good bathroom reading for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, and no doubt there'll be there'll be response to it. So we'll talk in the future about it, Greg. Thanks. Uh, all right, now God bless. Thank you, Dr. Gregory Popcheck. Again, this is this is quite a remarkable uh, finding, and we will return to it to unpack it because there's a lot here. But it's good news for those of us who have maintained that there is something called a universal moral law or natural law. I'm Al Cresta. Christ is the answer with Father John Ricardo. John chapter 11, verses 21 to 26. This is the story of Lazarus. Lazarus has died. Lazarus is one of his best friends. Just before this passage, we hear the news that Martha and Mary send word to Jesus that the one you love is sick. And the next line in the scripture is, now because Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, he stayed where he was. His friends in need, he can heal. They've seen him heal before. And yet somehow because he loves him, he stays. And Lazarus dies. And then Jesus shows up three days later and is greeted by Martha and Mary, who confront him with the words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would never have died. Rather applicable for many of us in our lives. We ask the Lord to do one thing because we're certain it is what we think is best, when in fact he has something which far surpasses what we ask for. The challenge is, in waiting for that to happen, we go through very trying times, which oftentimes makes us wonder, does he really care? It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Household chores aren't just tasks that need to be done. They're a way for family members to learn to take care of each other. Families who create daily working together rituals don't see tasks like washing dishes or cleaning up the family room or folding laundry simply as things to do. By doing them together, these tasks become a way for family members to say, I love you, and you can count on me to show up, not just for the fun stuff, but all the other stuff too. Family working together rituals help families connect around caring for each other and their home. And that's one reason family rituals for working together are such an important part of Catholic family life. 
To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. We are called to defend life from the rally to the march. EWTN Television and Radio brings you live and complete coverage of the most important pro-life event of the year. Join us for the annual March for Life in Washington, D.C. Coverage begins Friday morning, 8 Eastern on EWTN Television and Radio. Millions of people have kicked off 2024 by making the traditional New Year's resolutions. Are you one of them? Are they related to your faith, your home life, your health? Let us know by going to AveMariaRadio.net and scrolling down to the poll of the week. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. CMF Curo is a Catholic health care ministry providing families nationwide with a better solution centered around whole health, spirit, mind, and body. Our members share their medical burdens within a faith-filled community. At CMF Curo, our members have access to a spiritual director, concierge services, and other health and spiritual resources. Find out if CMF Curo is a better solution for your family. Visit MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Father Philip Pochansky, is uh, author most recently of Wisdom of the Desert. Uh, excuse me, Wisdom of the Desert Fathers and Mothers, Ancient Advice for the Modern World. Uh, Father Pochansky has been with us before. Uh, his book, The Virtue of Hope, How Confidence in God Can Lead You to Heaven, it's been a topic. Also, the series of lectures that he did on the virtue of hope we've discussed on this program. And, uh, Father, good to have you back here. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure, Al. You know, uh, the, the fact that this book exists at all, it really, uh, I owe to you. Um, the conversation that we had about the, that lecture series a few years ago was what uh, I think one of the acquisitions editors at uh, TAN heard that, that program and asked if I wanted to turn those into a book, and, and that book led to this book. So, yeah, this is Beautiful. a pleasure to be back with you. I really yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, well, that's good. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this. I, I can remember when I first began hearing about the Desert Fathers, and then later I heard about also the Desert Mothers. I said to myself, that's a funny title. I mean, I, we, we hear about, quote, the Fathers, but who in the world are the mm-hmm. Desert Fathers? And why the Desert? I mean, what? Uh, who, who are these people? When when do they become sure. a category? 
Well, I think the the first uh, major figure uh, is uh, St. Anthony of Egypt, also known as Anthony the Great. And he went out into the the desert uh, in the second half of the the third century. Uh, And uh, it was just after... Uh, the persecutions were dying down uh, in Egypt, where he was from. There'd be another wave at the beginning of the fourth century, uh, but you know, people were were looking for a uh, a more radical way of of living the faith. Uh, their parents and grandparents' generations had been martyrs during the Roman persecutions, uh, and now that that now that Christianity was getting uh, more accepted by the broader world, uh, some of the the, the men and women of the of the fourth century uh we're thinking how do we how do we uh, really dedicate our lives to god how do we uh give him that kind of total sacrifice that we see in the martyrs and so uh following saint anthony's example they went to live in the uh in the wilderness outside the the cities and and then farther and farther into the desert uh first as uh, hermits and solitaries and then eventually the idea of monasteries grew up there and then it spread from egypt through um uh, Syria and and the area of the Holy Land uh, and continued um, really developing over the next couple of centuries uh, and then in the seventh century uh, came kind of made its way back into Europe and and gave birth to uh, the idea of monasticism as we know it today in the West but there's still there's still monks and and nuns in the desert uh, in places like Manassas and and uh, even in some of the monasteries that were founded in the in the fourth century uh, in Egypt still exist and they're still living that same that same style of life. Wow, so that this is this is a movement that occurs really before there's there are a large uh, number of monastic institutions. So this is prior to the monastery. Is that right? Yeah, the, the first monasteries, as as we would uh, think about them today, really started in the desert with people like uh, Saint Pacomius, who is not a household word in the in the, the in the western part of the church, but you know it's certainly uh, still very important to Eastern uh, Catholic and Eastern Orthodox monasticism. He would have influenced Saint Basil the Great, who wrote the most famous rule for for monks of the Eastern churches. Um, but yeah, he uh, he was roughly contemporary. Um, yeah, he was getting started when Saint Anthony was uh, was reaching his. The, he was getting towards the end of his life, so beginning of the fourth century would have been. Uh, or, yeah, beginning of the fourth century would have been when Saint Pacomius founded these monasteries. So, do these uh, do, do, do the Desert Fathers? Do they? How do we know what they were about? In other words, how isolated were they? Uh, did did they? Was there a trafficking between? you know, urban Christian communities and these clusters of uh, hermits and monks out in the desert? Great question. Yep. Yeah, great question. St. Anthony, um, you know, started really just on the outskirts of uh, the town where he lived. Uh, and then, um, you know, he was still close enough for uh, his friends to come and see him from time to time. He moved from uh, from there out to the cemeteries outside of town, and then uh, when when uh, he wanted even more solitude, he went first to what's called his outer mountain, and then to his inner mountain. But people that grew up with him and had heard of uh, his really radical way of life, they knew where he was, and they came looking for him, and uh, would come to him for advice, what we today would probably call spiritual direction. Yeah. Uh, and then some of them were uh, so drawn by his example that 
And they said, well, I want to stay. And he said, well, we used to give each other some room. <laughs> Let's set up. Uh, you can go live a couple miles over that way, and we'll get together uh, from time to time. And uh, so, uh, you know, even with, before Pacomius, uh, St. Anthony's um, followers and people whose lives he'd influenced had, had come to live in that area. And so monasteries and, and, and these solitaries were relatively, uh, you know, accessible to the major kind of trade routes through the desert um, because they needed food, right? And so they would gather the reeds or uh, other branches that, that they, they could find and, and uh, plate them into baskets or, or mats or, or other things that they could sell. Mm-hmm. And as, uh, as merchants came through on their journeys between the big cities, they, you know, get trade uh, food and, and uh, fresh water for those, for those kind of uh, goods that the monks had produced. So, and then they come back, of course, and tell stories. I met this holy guy, and people would go out with questions or in need of counsel or oftentimes to ask for prayers and even miracles for themselves or loved ones who are ill. Do do and we know the church was aware of them? Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, keep going. That's fine. I was going to say the, the church was aware of them too, and and uh, you know the the reason that we know what we know about uh, Saint Anthony is because of the the great Saint Athanasius, the yes, okay. uh, the patriarch of Alexandria, who who wrote Anthony's biography, and uh, and relied on him uh, at several junctures. Uh, both to support the martyrs when when persecutions broke out again in Alexandria, but also to uh, to uh, come with him to to speak against the the Arian heresy that was that was starting to uh, gain traction around this time. What did they uh, do for liturgy? I'm just curious. Did uh, I know it's early in the development uh, of uh, you know liturgy, but I'm just curious. What do they do if they're alone? Well, you know, it's it's uh, one of the things I think that that uh, is kind of uh, super relevant to the time that we're going through right now because, you know, we we tend to think of uh, monasteries with a chapel at the center and and a chaplain, but um, some of the, the monks lived uh, in solitude for years on end and yeah. and weren't able to 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 go to the, the divine liturgy and you know of course there's only an obligation uh, to do that when it's possible. Right. right. So they, right. they felt this inspiration to live apart. And so they were uh, they were without sometimes for, for long periods, but they certainly had their their routine of prayer and we can see the beginnings of what we would know now know as the divine office of the liturgy of the hours and their very kind of uh, regimented routine of reciting the psalms, you know, for them that was that was their liturgy. So um, you know, when monasteries were established, they would uh, call on uh, one or two of the members of the monastery to uh, to be ordained as priests for the sake of uh, of providing the sacraments for the rest of the community. Uh, but monks who lived as solitaries, you know, didn't have uh, ready access to the sacraments. Although there there is a story um, that uh, that Saint uh, Macarius the Great tells of meeting a couple of. Uh, monks who lived so far in the deep desert that they, he said, they just their clothes had all disintegrated. They, he thought they were wild animals at first. And they told him, they told him that that an angel came and brought them holy communion every every Saturday and Sunday, and that they had heard that uh, the angel had was bringing holy communion to uh, monks who were living in in such deep solitude in other parts of the desert. So. You know, God has ways to provide what yeah. we need uh, yeah. that go beyond our expectation. Do 
do they do they write at all? I mean, uh, how do we know what their sayings are? I know there aren't these collections of the sayings. Mm-hmm. Did they? Yeah, publish so that's, that, yeah, that's really that's really what got me interested in them to begin with. Way back uh, when I was a seminarian, um, we uh, when we had a course called Patrology, which means the study of the fathers. Um, that was part of that course. You know, we think of the fathers as the great bishops and and theologians of the first seven or eight centuries, people like Augustine and Athanasius, people we call the doctors of the church, right, uh, who wrote big treatises and long homilies that are recorded and taken down. Uh, the desert fathers and mothers, um, most of their uh, spiritual doctrine, if you would want to call it that, or their, certainly their spiritual advice, uh, is in the form of sayings. Uh, the mm-hmm. Greeks have this really neat word for it, apophegmata, which uh, comes from the same kind of root word as a grunt, right? This is not a, this is not a long, uh, long-developed uh, theological treatise. It's a saying, a, a story or an analogy or a word of advice that was given from a particular elder monk to a particular younger monk or disciple in regard to a particular question or situation, right? Oftentimes their conversation is recorded as starting with, Father, give me a word. And it's just a pithy saying, a, you know, a, a line, a paragraph, you know, something to meditate on. And uh, you know, sometimes a monk would ask for a word, and then he'd go and meditate on that one phrase from the Scripture for months or years, and before he came back and asked for another word. But anyway, the, the, the disciples of these great figures in the desert would hand on their, their sayings in just that way. You know, Abba uh, so-and-so used to say this, Abba so-and-so used to say that. And eventually, through that oral tradition, uh, the, their various uh, strands of that of tradition that, became, that were written down, sometimes arranged alphabetically by the name of the Father, sometimes uh, arranged by the theme that it's about. And so those are copied and recopied and have come down to us in manuscripts and, and published books for, for centuries. Do we have, um, I mean, when I think of just the idea of hermits being out in the desert like that, I also think, um, you know, sometimes people get unstable. Um, You know, there's this TV series that's been popular for years now called Alone, in which people go out uh, to see how long they can survive, uh, you know, on Vancouver Island or Patagonia or Mongolia. And uh, you can see that for a number of them, it becomes mentally and emotionally very difficult as they go to their 40th, 50th, 60th day. Uh, I'd like, like to know about what we know about the Desert Fathers and if they understood that there there was what we would call psychological difficulties or spiritual difficulties that afflicted some of their brethren who were out there. But we'll talk about that on the other side of the break. My guest is Father Philip Bochansky, Wisdom of the Desert Fathers and Mothers. When I was outside of the church, there was always an unsettled feeling. There was always a feeling of something missing and something not complete. The the deal clincher is we found our way to our our parish and we met just an incredible pastor. We learned things that we'd never been taught. Wouldn't be the person that I am without the church and without the sacraments, particularly the Eucharist. I can't live without it. If you've been away from the Catholic Church, visit catholicscomehome.org. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. 
buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. 60 on 10 with Monsignor Charles Pope. The second commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The disclosure of a name in the ancient world belonged to the order of trust and intimacy. And so when God revealed his name to Moses, it was an extraordinary outreach to us, saying uh, that we were called to an intimate, trusting relationship with him. And so we should always reverence this name as a great gift. We should obviously never use God's name to curse or to blaspheme or to berate others. God's name is meant to bring blessing. And likewise, the vain use. Vain means empty. Uh, so some of these expressions like, oh my God, or you know, and so on, uh, need to be avoided as well. Vain means empty, and those are using God's name as an empty kind of expression of exasperation. And then finally, never ever to use God's name to swear an oath falsely. God is the God of truth. The second commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For more about the Ten Commandments, visit EWTNRC.com. The Word Became Flesh to redeem us from our sinful state, the Catechism tells us, and reconcile us to God. We lived in darkness and needed a great light. We were prisoners and we needed to be freed. In such a miserable state, we needed a divine human mediator to descend from heaven. Through Jesus' suffering and death, we learned how much God loved us. For divinity to descend to humanity, and humanity in the poorest circumstances, demanded great love and great sacrifice and great humility. It also gave us a great role model whom we could and should imitate on our life's journey. Jesus is the embodiment of the Beatitudes and the norm of the new law. He commanded us to love one another as I have loved you. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me, Father Philip Bochanski. We're looking at the Desert Fathers and Mothers, and before the break, I asked a question about uh, did did the Desert Fathers have some sort of criteria by which they could judge who would be stable enough to endure the kind of discipline of living in the desert, or even later, once monasteries were established. Um, 
how did they what did they look for in a candidate or a, a brother uh, to be part of this movement yeah it's such a fascinating question um, I think first of all because you know the 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 psych part of psychology of course is the it comes from the Greek word for soul right yeah. in a way yep. I think the, the desert fathers were the original Christian psychologists right right, right. Uh, and they they really were their, their writings uh, both their sayings and, and later on more developed treatises about uh, monastic life really have a lot of insight into uh, into psychology and, and the ways of the heart you know they developed the first idea of discernment of spirits you know how to tell whether an inspiration or a thought uh, or a desire is coming from God or from oneself or from a wounded place or from the devil or from the world. Um, so they, they're very astute. And uh, you know, one of the, one of the, uh, the rules, and this is going to sound strange because we've been talking about monks living as solitaries, but uh, the, one of the general rules is no one really was allowed to live all by himself or herself until they could live successfully in community. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, right? the, idea, the, the idea was, you know, you you go into the into the solitude, but you take yourself with you. So if you haven't learned <laughs> to overcome the the basic you know uh, basic uh, uh, vices of of pride and having to have your own way and you know wanting to be paid attention to and and if you haven't acquired humility and patience and gentleness, then uh, you're you're going to drive yourself crazy in, in in solitude because all those foibles and failings are coming with you. So um, when when someone would come to the monastery, uh, there are very interesting stories that St. John Cashin relates of how they would have make them sit at the door for sometimes for a week, sometimes for a month, you know, just to kind of test, is this person serious or not? Can they really yeah. take, uh, you know, this kind of really radical detachment and commitment? Uh, once they let them in, they'd hold on to their... their uh, worldly clothes for a couple of months just to see if they could uh, stick it out and uh, then they'd uh, eventually give them away to the poor uh, but there was a lot of testing and, and a lot of uh, um, steps along the way before they had kind of made a definitive commitment to the community and the community to them and the, the same kind of process happens in, in religious communities today the idea of a you know of a uh, an exp- exploration phase and then postulancy and then a very strict novitiate and then a little extension of the novitiate and temporary vows and before final vows. So uh, they were, they were you know, very astute in terms of uh, testing and, and preparing someone for that lifelong commitment. Now, now the flip side of that question of, of psychology is there, there are uh, a number of great figures of the desert, usually written about and spoken about by others, um, who were known as fools for Christ. Uh, who, um, you know, these stories of, uh, you know, uh, a monk or a bishop traveling a great distance to come and find the, the holiest person in the in the monastery, and you find, you know, it's the 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 man that sweeps the kitchen or the woman that washes the uh, the bed the bedclothes, you know, and everybody kind of ignores them and and uh, passes over them because they just seem like they don't matter much and and they're not very bright and they're uh, they're not very kind of socially acceptable but you find out that they're the ones whose prayers sustain the rest of the monastery and huh. uh, that, that they're really their secret to their holiness is in their extraordinary humility so they appear mad or or uh, or ignorant or just of no consequence but really uh, they are the great the great heroes of, of holiness in, in their particular place 
when Saint Athanasius uh, writes the life of Saint Anthony, it's it's <laughs> apparently has a tremendous influence. Um, somebody like Saint Augustine comes across uh, the life of Saint Anthony. Mm-hmm. How does that affect him? Well, you know, both uh, directly and indirectly, you know, it first affected his friends. And, uh, you know, they read this, this story of this guy, not, uh, not far removed in time from themselves, and, uh, you know, about the, about the age that they were when he made his radical decision. And, you know, Augustine was, he was a very accomplished uh, and very uh, well-connected young man. You know, he, he only took the good students who could pay, and so he had money. He had uh, fame, you know, uh, in certain circles, and so did his friends. You know, they were the cool kids. They were, you know, uh, they had it all going for them. And, yeah. you know, one by one, his, his friends were saying to themselves, Oh wait a minute! There's more to life than just this life that we're living. You know, huh. like they they read the life of Anthony and this, you know, the, this these great sacrifices that he made, and they thought, "What am I doing with my life?" And so, <laughs> one by one, uh, you know, his friends were all you know leaving the world behind and becoming Christians. And Augustine had to had to choose. You know, was he going to be the only one left, uh, or was he going to make the same kind of radical commitment? So. Uh, we know that he had uh, access to the life of Anthony as well, and it had a, a similar effect on him. I mean, Augustine tells us very, very uh, poignantly in the Confessions, you know, how 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 much that desire to be, you know, to make that radical choice uh, attracted him, but how much personally he had to overcome in order to let go of the world. So, uh, but it, the origins of that, in in, a, in large part, is, is due to the life of the. the impact that the life of Anthony had on Augustine and his circle of friends. Mm. Did, uh, let's talk a little bit about the, the content uh, of their teaching. Is it a coherent body of material that they have? I mean, do these maxims and aphorisms, do, do they uh, make up a coherent body of teaching, or are they just witticisms? Well, you know, it, I, I think you see the particular uh, emphases and the particular personalities of each of the fathers and mothers, which is one of the things that, to me, makes them so enjoyable to read and so fascinating sometimes. Um, but they I have a voice, so you can, you can, so you can actually oh, recognize absolutely. the voice. <laughs> That's absolutely. great. Absolutely. Sometimes, okay. sometimes with with great humor and great insight, you know. Um, you know, I think what it centers around most of all is purity of heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and and um, you know, mechanically speaking, you know, the kind of solitude and and method of prayer and meditation and and kind of uh, praying, you know, on on a certain theme over and over again. I, you could see similarities with uh, with Buddhist monks, for example, mm-hmm. uh, who live, you know, in the top of a mountain in great isolation, etc. But the difference is a Buddhist is leaving the world in order to just kind of float, if you will, in this kind of a state of enlightenment where nothing mm-hmm. affects him. Uh, whereas the Desert Fathers uh, want to become detached from the world uh, so that they can have as intense a connection as possible with the Father, the Son, and the Holy yeah. Spirit. And yeah. There's this, this great insight that we've left the world in order to live with God. And when you know that that's where you're going and that's the reward, then nothing in the world can pull us back. 
but it's they... a process for for any for anybody to to make that kind of detachment. So they they help their the younger ones to 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 get to that point step by step. So their detachment is is. Uh... Is actually uh, is then it's a form of, of reattachment, right? I mean, they detach in order to more thoroughly attach to God. Always, always, okay. and, and that's you know, I mean, that goes right back to uh, the first words of Jesus uh, in the, the oldest gospel, the Gospel of Saint Mark: "Turn away from sin and believe in the good news. Turn away from the world to turn towards God." Right? It's always in the Bible that the the metanoia the, the, and the uh, the, the Hebrew word, which I should know, I, I learned it once upon a time in seminary. But uh, they're both in both Greek and Hebrew. The, the words for conversion is not just a giving up, but a, a giving to, a turning away from the world right. in order to turn right. towards God. As you say, disconnecting in order to reconnect. Yeah, yeah. Um, th- describe uh, some of these characters for me: Saint Arsenius or Saint Macarius. Uh, who were they? What were they like? So Saint Arsenius is, is fascinating. He was a tutor to the children of the emperor, uh, and so he lived in the palace uh, with every worldly pleasure at his uh, at his fingertips. Um, and so when he got to the desert, he was very abstemious. Right? He he went following an inspiration. He heard a voice one day saying, uh, "Arsenius, what are you doing with your life?" Uh, you know, come to the desert and come to me. And uh, so he went, and uh, he he would sit for long stretches of time, uh, not speaking at all. You know, remembering all the gossip and all the the, the parties and all the <laughs> the yeah, kind of powerful places he had been and oh. powerful people he had talked to. Uh, you know, he was very. Uh, it was not always pleasant to be around him because he didn't bathe very often, and he didn't change the water in the, that he soaked the reeds in from which he made his baskets, because he said, well, when I was in the palace, I had perfumes and spices and all sorts of pleasant things, so now I have to make up for all that. Oh. So you have him on the one on the one hand, and then you have uh, somebody like uh, St. Moses the Ethiopian uh, on the other hand, who uh, was just as uh, penitential in his own way, um, but also had a great gift for... Uh, for hospitality, right, and a grand, and welcome to, you know, you could go to see Abarcenius, and he'd sit and maybe not talk to you for the whole time you were there, and he didn't care, <laughs> he just traveled for a week through the desert to see him, he just, he was praying, whereas uh, Moses would come out to meet people, he'd make a little meal for them, they'd talk, they'd sing, uh, so it was very different, as I say, in each of the Desert Fathers, their, their, their personality shone through, and uh, it's one of the paradoxes of discipleship, isn't it? That the more that we give ourselves completely to Jesus, the more fully our own yes. personhood and personality comes yes. together. You know? Yeah, yeah. I uh, love and that. Moses, Moses had been a had been a, a, a sheep rustler and a, a housebreaker and a, and a gangster. <laughs> he, Moses went to the desert to get away from the cops. <laughs> he, he literally was being chased by the authorities. The monks in the desert of Nitria hid hid him for a while. And they treated him with such respect and 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 such uh, humility that it just impressed him enough that he he wanted to stay. And there's lots. I don't want to tell too many stories because he's a big part of the book. I want people to read the book. Okay. There's right, a lot of right. great. There's a lot of great stories of how Moses could be merciful uh, because he had been shown great mercy, which yeah. again is just a, a very important theme of going all the way back to the Gospels. Do the mothers of the desert? Have do they evidence um, a, a distinctive feminine genius? Uh, 
as opposed to the the men uh, yes I, I think so especially especially uh, Synclitica, who who's got a couple of chapters in the book um, you know in the in the collection of the of the of the writings of the desert fathers there's you know maybe a hundred and forty some men and only five or six women who, mm-hmm. who are recorded there. Uh, and then uh, there's a separate document which gives a life and teaching of St. Synclitica, which you can tell was written to kind of, uh, you know, in conscious imitation of the life of St. Anthony. And so it, it has her, um, her particular uh, insights into the spiritual life. And, uh, yeah, she's... Um, She's she's got this beautiful, I mean, this beautiful um, tenderness and patience uh, with people who are starting out, right? And, and she advises uh, the sisters in her monastery. You know, when someone is starting, praise every little bit of progress that they make. Yes, they're going to fall. Yes, they're going to uh, you know to not get it right the first time. Uh, but hold your tongue about the failings and just praise every progress that, that they make. And it's a very, very maternal way of doing things, you know. Um, she's got this, I mean, she also has some, some very quirky ways of looking at things, uh, you know, having to do with the experience of women. You know, they shaved their heads when they got to the desert. And so she said, well, good, the hair is gone so you can get to the stuff that's underneath and really be converted. So <laughs> I, I hear the music playing, but, but uh, yeah, she just has a, a beautiful personality that shines through. Father, thank you for spending the time here. This is a great volume, Wisdom of the Desert Fathers and Mothers, Father Philip Bochansky. This program brought to you in part by the following nonprofit, Christian in College. Looking for a life-changing experience this summer that will strengthen your child's faith and immerse them in a joyful Catholic culture? Well, send them to Christendom College's high school summer program, The Best Week Ever. It's located in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, and The Best Week Ever is one of those gifts that keeps on giving. You can learn more and apply at bestweekever.com. Mention Al Cresta when applying. That's bestweekever.com. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. That idea of suffering is one of the reasons many people either turn away from God or they ignore faith altogether because they cannot comprehend or wrap their heads around suffering and all the suffering in the world. This is an issue for you, and it's it's an issue for all of us from time to time when we go through rough situations, to say, Lord, what do you want me to learn about suffering? Ask the Lord to help you understand the meaning of suffering. God doesn't waste his time with anything. Whatever you go through, he will use if you allow him to use it. And you look at the greatest evil, right? The killing of God, Jesus, the Son of God on the cross, And what came out of that? Our salvation. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. A 
good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thanking you for being with me this first hour. And uh, hope you enjoyed the conversation with Father Bochansky and also with uh, Greg Popcheck. Talking of yesterday, I was answering a question that uh, a listener sent about what's the relationship when you're looking at political candidates. How important is it to view the religion, you know, the doctrinal basis of what they believe, and how does is that important? So, if we have a Hindu running for president or a Buddhist running for president. Uh, does the religious commitments make much difference? Uh, and I said yesterday, not much, <laughs> not more than virtue. Uh, character counts, and that's what you're looking for. You're not looking for those who adhere to a particular uh, religious philosophy. You're looking for those who are, in fact, men and women of virtue. And so that's why at the time with Dr. Greg Popcheck today, we were able to look at these moral rules that uh, seem to be universal around the world. And that's, again, a lot of people think there's, uh, like, talk about moral rel- relativism. Uh, well, modern, modern philosophy doesn't like relativism, and neither does modern anthropology. So they're talking against the evidence when they talk about being uh, moral relativists. Next to our, uh, one of the great New Testament scholars of our generation, uh, N.T. Wright, will take a look at the New Testament in its world, its Roman world, its Jewish world. I'm Al Cresta. from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta, thanking you for joining me. Uh, In this hour, we're going to be sitting down. This is actually an interview I recorded uh, previously in i uh, not sure exactly the date on it. I think it was two years ago or so. But it was with the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, who is uh, really one of the most respected New Testament scholars in the English-speaking world. He also, uh, is in, it's interesting because he was also the Bishop of Durham, which, was, which is an Anglican uh, church designation, uh, not Catholic. Uh, but his scholarship is done with a view towards the people of God. How does it work, not just academically, but how does the New Testament work in terms of the church, in terms of members of the body of Christ? So we're going to talk about the New Testament in its world. That's actually a massive book that Wright published recently. And what we'll do is we'll take a look at the New Testament as history. We'll take a look at the New Testament as literature. We'll take a look at the Jewish context of the New Testament. We'll look at the Greco-Roman context of the early church. At least those are some of the things that are on my agenda for the conversation. And I think this is, I mean, this is incredibly important. Uh, One of the good things that have happened over the last generation is we've seen an explosion of New Testament scholars uh, in the Catholic world uh, and in the uh, conservative Protestant world who hold to uh, biblical authority. In other words, they approach the New Testament, they approach the well, Old and New Testament, approach these as the Word of God. 
not just as ancient documents that are interesting and curious. These are regarded as uh, binding on the conscience of the baptized. And so uh, when you have someone who believes that uh, the biblical documents are in the divinely revealed, and also has the academic tools at his disposal, as uh, Professor Wright does, then you can count on uh, really getting a good number of good insights into the original context of the New Testament, Second Temple Judaism, uh, the birth of the Church, of course, the Gospels, uh, the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So stay with me. We're going to have a good time in this hour. But first, I want to get to the headlines. Thank you, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Wednesday, January 17th. It's the Feast of St. Anthony the Abbot. And today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. The Biden administration is putting the Yemen-based Iranian-backed Houthi rebels back on the list of terrorist organizations. The administration made the announcement Wednesday after their recent airstrikes against commercial ships in the Red Sea. The U.S. retaliated last week by launching airstrikes on the Houthi facilities in Yemen. The announcement reverses a 2021 decision by the Biden administration to remove the Houthis from the terror list to improve chances of peace talks in Yemen. New York's two U.S. senators are joining the families of the hostages held by Hamas in a plea for continued U.S. support to bring them home. At a press conference in Washington, D.C. today, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer told the families they're doing everything they can to bring the hostages home. Don't give up hope. There are always new initiatives as there are right now. And we are making slow, 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 but important progress. Not that that progress can't come fast enough. Senator Kristen Gillibrand said the path to peace with all hostages being returned and the rebuilding of a Palestinian state without Hamas is now more urgent than ever. And Detroit Lions fans are so loud and proud, they broke Ford Field's decibel record last weekend. During the super wildcard matchup between the Lions and Los Angeles Rams, it was so loud in Detroit that the volume reached 133.6 decibels. The CDC says that's the equivalent to the sound of a jet engine. Meanwhile, NBC said the game averaged 35.8 million viewers on all platforms, which makes it TV's most watched primetime show since last year's Super Bowl. From the AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Those of us who begin reading the New Testament become aware fairly quickly that there's a whole lot we don't know about the setting of the New Testament. Uh, Who are the New Testament authors writing to? What are the circumstances that occasion the writing? Sometimes it seems obvious, other times it's less clear. And... uh, We also wonder about the larger uh, setting of the New Testament. What were the attitudes of uh, the New Testament writers to uh, the Roman Empire? Uh, What were their attitudes towards the Jewish uh, leadership and authorities? How did they understand the work of Jesus in their own immediate setting? And, of course, we try to get behind the eyes of the uh, 
first audience, which is very important. But we also know that the New Testament is meant to be read by us today and applied by us today. So it's not just enough to get behind the eyes of that first audience. One man who's done more, I think, than anybody else in my generation to help us understand uh, not only the setting of the uh, New Testament, its content, but also its application in our own generation is Dr. N.T. Wright. He is presently Senior Research Fellow at Wycliffe Hall, Oxford. He's the author of more than 80 books and hundreds of articles. And most recently, he's contributed, along with uh, co-author Michael Byrd, The New Testament in Its World. It's an introduction to the history, literature, and theology of the first Christians. And Dr. Wright, it's a pleasure to have you back with me again. Thank you. Thank you. Good to talk to you again. Let's uh, talk about the very title of the book, The New Testament in Its World. Um, The world of the New Testament certainly is the Roman world, it's the Jewish world, and then, of course, we're in the 21st century world. Talk to me about world and its importance for this book. Well, um, I think by world here we mean uh, a kind of three overlapping uh, cultural worlds. The world of the first century Jews, which is uh, obviously where Jesus himself was and where all the earliest followers of Jesus were uh, living in the Jewish world, whether in the Middle East or out in the diaspora in Turkey or Egypt or, or, or Greece or wherever. But then secondly, and I've already mentioned it, the world of Greece, which is the world of philosophy, of ideas, of culture, um, which had spread itself right across what we call the Middle East 300 years before the time of Jesus, so that um, Greek is everybody's second language at the time. you know, just like many parts of the world today, um, English is everybody's second language. So Greek was like that in the first century. Um, And there were many ideas and discussions which are going around about the big issues, about God and the world, about what it means to be human and so on, which many um, intelligent, thoughtful people were, were giving voice to. And the early Christians, when they were saying what they wanted to say, that was part of their audience. That was part of who they were addressing. But then thirdly, it's the Roman world. And though Rome, of course, has uh, ideas, etc., it's particularly a world of empire, of power, of military power, of a political system which was so strong that it basically ran a large portion of the known world for hundreds of years. Um, It was a very robust system. And again, anyone talking about God becoming king, about the kingdom of God, about Jesus as king and lord and lord of the world, is inevitably going to bump their nose pretty soon up against the Roman world, the Roman way of doing power, if you like. And uh, it's very interesting because, of course, um, the question of the Jewish world, a question of, of a monotheistic world, one God who has made the world and loves the world, the question of the Greek world with its ideas and culture, and then the question of power, these questions are very much with us still. Greece and Rome and the Middle East may not play exactly the same role as they did in the first century, but um, there is a kind of a, an obvious relevance of all of this to the, first, to the 21st century. But in order to get at it, we really need to understand what was going on in those worlds at the time. So there we are. The key, the key proclamation, Jesus is Lord, uh, the idea that Jesus uh, is identified with proclaiming the kingdom of God, inaugurating the kingdom of God, how does that bump up against uh, the Roman world? Well, uh, there are many people today who would say that if you take, say, Mark's Gospel, which is the shortest and in some ways the easiest, not necessarily, but uh, uh, you have Mark's portrayal of Jesus as the King of the Jews in stark contrast to the Roman Empire. Um, 
there are several points in the narrative which seem to, especially when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and then is tried by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and it's almost as though the soldiers are mocking Jesus as though he wants to be some kind of a Caesar. And then the centurion at the foot of the cross says, actually, this man was the Son of God. And we know from the coins and so on of the time that the phrase Son of God was in regular use as an epithet for Caesar himself. So all the way through, though the, the Jewish meaning is paramount, um, the, the implication all the way through is that if this is the king of the Jews, then um, Caesar has to take some demotion. He's got to be brought down a peg or two at the very least, quite possibly more. And then when we get to Paul, it's quite clear in passages like Philippians chapter 2, when he says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess Jesus Christ is Lord. But he's saying Jesus is Lord, and then in square brackets, as it, and by the way, that means that Caesar is not Lord because Lord is a regular Caesar title as well. Mm-hmm. So those are two very obvious ways in which um, to read the New Testament with your eyes open to the first century makes you realize um, this is pretty much in your face, actually. The the, the world of uh, Second Temple Judaism, first century Palestinian Judaism, is uh, a world with lots of debate and argument going on. Uh, mm-hmm. To what degree would the, your average uh, uh, first century uh, Jew on the street understand that the kingdom of God was, in fact, uh, a challenge to the entire Roman world, the Roman Empire, uh, and to what degree did he see it as a, you know, a matter of personal devotion, and he should wait to, uh, you know, until the, his death and hopefully enter in the afterlife some kind of what we would call heaven? Oh. Yeah, well, um, that many Jews did discuss different options about what they might believe about the afterlife, but the phrase kingdom of God was never a phrase about what we call the afterlife. That was always, uh, as Jesus taught his followers to pray, thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven. Mm-hmm. It's assumed that God is already king in heaven, but the whole point of the Lord's Prayer is to pray that this will become a reality on earth as well. And so many Jews of the time would believe that though God would look after them after their death, um, of course he would, because he promised to do that, um, that there would come a new time within the world of space-time and matter, within real uh, the, the reality of this world, in which um, God would renew everything and raise his people from the dead, and that would be the kingdom of God. And when you look at the Old Testament, um, the book of Isaiah, the Psalms, the book of Daniel, which is very prominent here, the idea of God becoming king is never about um, uh, leaving this world and going to a place called heaven. It's always something dramatic happening to turn things around within this world. And that is certainly what the earliest Christians believed. Um, so that though, of course, there are many opinions in first century Judaism, we can never say all Jews believed X, right. um, because there are always differences of opinion. But when you're talking about the kingdom of God, you're retrieving those biblical texts in particular, which are about the great turnaround within the present world. And this is something that modern Christians, modern Western Christians, find it very difficult to get their heads around because we've been drilled uh, with so much Plato since the 18th and 19th century, which has been actually a way of keeping the church, a way of the politicians keeping the church off the patch. Uh, there you are, you go and believe in heaven and we'll run the world. Right. The early Christians would have said, truly, Jesus runs the world, thank you very much, and, and but, but he doesn't do it in the same way as Caesar does. That's, that's the crucial thing, that the kingdom of God as revealed in Jesus is about a different kind of power, a different way of doing power. And we see the early church wrestling with precisely that in a book like Second Corinthians for instance. Well, would, um, I mean, it's, there's a whole stream of uh, 
New Testament scholarship that would say Jesus came uh, promising the kingdom, and all we ended up with was this church. Um, that in yeah, fact yeah, yeah. he he failed. Uh, he he was he mis he was he misled people, or he himself was uh, wrong about his own uh, power yeah, and expectations. That, that's that's been uh, yeah that's been a very frequent thing that people have said over this last century or so, and I think it it goes back to various people like Tyrrell and Razi uh, about a century back. Um, but that mistakes the whole thing that Jesus is constantly talking about. I mean, in the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, um, when he's talking about blessed are the peacemakers and the hungry for justice people and the mourners and, and the, uh, the, the, the pure in heart and so on, he's not saying, if you are this kind of person, God will love you. He's saying, these are the kinds of people through whom God is bringing his kingdom in the world. And so uh, the people who think that Jesus was predicting a sudden big bang and everything would be different overnight, or maybe the end of the world and a sort of a totally supernatural world starting thereafter. That, that's a modern misunderstanding. Um, uh, you see, the, 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 the way the message that Jesus was proclaiming is that the way God wants to challenge and change the world is through what we see in Jesus himself, a kind of dramatically humble, rescuing servant ministry. Um, so that uh, Jesus' followers, ever since his death and resurrection and ascension, uh, went out in the power of the Spirit into the world and started living differently and started after the poor and started doing education for all, despite the fact that most people in those days were probably illiterate or semi-literate. Mm -hmm. They started doing medicine for all because Jesus was into healing and they wanted to make healing available to all. Um, and by the time the bullies and the bad guys and the power brokers had woken up, you know, the meek and the hungry and the uh, would-be justice people and the um, uh, peacemakers had been building schools and orphanages and were going around changing the world. And the world has gone on being changed ever since. As many historians have said, actually, when you look at the ancient Roman world and then see, granted, Christianity made a lot of mistakes. Of course, uh, it, it isn't perfect, anything like. But... The, the the world has been changed by the gospel and goes on being changed. Um, and kind of this stuff works, but it doesn't work in the way that either Caesar at the time or the journalists in our own time would necessarily like to see. Yeah, this is, this raises a, a big split uh, in the in the uh, thought of modern men and women. You were, you started out as a, a classical historian or a Roman historian, is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So so. Uh, it, Today we assume the that all human beings. I mean, it's it's whether you're talking about the United Nations or other uh, NGOs uh, that are out doing yep. work like Amnesty International. It's assumed that um, there's something called uh, universal human rights, and that uh, all people are to be uh, respected or respected before the law. Anyways, when we come back on the other side of the break. I want you to really help us understand how radically different that was, that that early Christian proclamation that Jesus had died for all, uh, how that was something that was entirely unfamiliar to uh, Jews, Romans, and Greeks. My guest, Dr. N.T. Wright, looking at the New Testament in its world. 
Award-winning EWTN TV and radio host Michael O'Neill has written a new book based on his popular series, They Might Be Saints. This latest EWTN publishing release introduces you to some of this country's greatest blesseds and venerables. From an explorer priest to the U.S. Bishop of All Media and a former slave turned successful businessman, this book is filled with the unique stories and achievements of exceptionally inspired men and women. Discover how some of the holiest Americans in history can transform your faith life. They Might Be Saints, the latest release from EWTN Publishing, now available at EWTNRC.com or call 1-800-854-6316. That's EWTNRC.com or call 1-800-854-6316. Just who is to blame for Jesus' crucifixion? The Church blames you, me, and all sinners for the suffering of the Savior, says the Catholic Catechism. We would like to heap all the blame on the Jews of Jesus' era and forget our own guilt. But the Church will not allow it. We are reminded that Christ came to save all sinners through all ages. Moreover, the Church points out our responsibility is even greater than the Jews of Jesus' day. We know who Jesus is. Many of them did not. They acted out of ignorance. Every time we sin now, we wound the Lord again in our hearts, which is where he lives, an awesome and sorrowful thought. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. The most original and exclusive Catholic content is on EWTN Radio. You know, we talk story with each of our very unique guests for the whole hour so that you can go deep with us as you yourself pursue your own story of heroic virtue and as you pursue intimacy with God. The Bear Wozniak Adventure, Saturday night, 6 Eastern on EWTN Radio. Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life healthcare durable power of attorney, accessible anytime on smartphones, and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code AVE at checkout today, and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at MyLifeAngels.com. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. 
CharityMobile.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. N.T. Wright. He and uh, uh, Michael Bird have uh, put together an outstanding introduction to the history, literature, and theology of the first Christians. It's called The New Testament in Its World. And in our world, we take for granted the idea that uh, people are equal before the law, um, and we try to maintain universal human dignity. Uh, this is this a is this part of what the Christian Church has given us over the years? Is this what Jesus, or, or yeah. was there a universal acceptance of one another prior to the incarnation? No, there really wasn't. And if you look at the ancient Roman society, I mean, the, the Roman Empire tried to have a kind of measure of equality, that all citizens were equal under the law, but that's all citizens. And if you weren't a Roman citizen, then you would decidedly not be right. equal. Um, but they were trying to do, so. they, had a, they did have a kind of quasi-universal vision in that they were running an empire that stretched from Spain to Syria and beyond, um, which you know, nobody had done quite that before. Okay, it was Genghis Khan and Alexander the Great, but the Romans really were trying to do a kind of a smoothing out operation, but it manifestly didn't work, and you still had total sharp distinction between males and females, and between, of course, slaves and free, mm -hmm. so that the Roman society was very much still a hierarchical society, and the Jewish world was much more egalitarian, though there too there were quite sharp distinctions and the different parties and sects within Judaism at the time were, were kind of reinforcing some of that. But then what you get from the very start with the early Christians, one of Paul's earliest letters, Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Um, you are all one in Messiah Jesus. That's an extraordinary statement. And people have often hailed it as revolutionary. And in a sense, the church is still struggling to come to terms with it, which is, which is you know, perhaps to be expected. But then uh, as the historian Tom Holland in his recent book, Dominion, yep. has, has pointed out, when you look at the Roman world, um, you see all kinds of things, which the early Christians, they didn't necessarily challenge head on, but they just went about doing it differently and subverting expectations and, and trying to treat people equally. And I mean, in the third and fourth century, the Roman officials didn't know very much about what Christianity was, but they knew that they had these people who were called bishops and that the bishops were always banging on about the plight of the poor. Um, <laughs> And I've often said to people, wouldn't it be nice if that was the thing that our bishops were famous for today? Um, and and uh, that, was, that was how the Church was rightly perceived, as people trying to do this human project differently. Now, of course, in our own day, with people like Stephen Pinker from Harvard saying, oh, we must forget all this religion because actually all we need is the Enlightenment and we just have to go forward with that, that is manifest nonsense. And it's nonsense even in America, where you'd think if it was going to work, it would work there. Um, that it, the, the, the great Enlightenment project, as the postmodernists have pointed out for the last 50 years, has let us down big time. Right. Um, it's out of the Enlightenment philosophies of Hegel and Kant and people that we have, well, the French Revolution, but then particularly um, the, the great totalitarians of the 20th century and the, the Holocaust and the Gulag and so on. These are basically Enlightenment projects, I'm sorry to say. And uh, uh, that's why we're a very confused Western world at the moment, that we've, we've only got certain moral standards left, e.g. we don't like Adolf Hitler and anyone who reminds us of him. But that's not a very good way to navigate reality. Um, and what the church 
had to offer in the first century and still has to offer. And we see this, I mean, back to the, the, the title of the book, the New Testament, in its world. The more you understand its world, the more you understand how revolutionary the message in the New Testament really was and still is. And that, that to me, is really exciting. It is. And uh, this, this, Afro, you know, this attempt to cling to the Enlightenment project, even though, uh, again, as you point out, for 50 years, uh, postmodern yeah. thinkers have been saying it's a failed project, uh, continues yeah, yeah, yeah. To, they continue to push on. Um, I mean, we celebrated in the United States the uh, was federal holiday of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., Oh yes, and uh, yes. that was yesterday. And <laughs> what's what's uh, I can remember uh, th- th- when I was a lot younger, uh, him being talked about as this great civil rights leader. And uh, at one of his um, one of the uh, memorial services for him, uh, it was taking place. Yeah. I don't recall the name of the church now, but uh, the reporter standing in front of the church said, "We're here at the memorial service of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr." Uh, at this church, and it's appropriate it would be in a church because his father was a Christian pastor. <laughs> Comple- completely missing that at the core of King's... Uh, King King wasn't... Wow. He was unlike wow. the other... He was not an Enlightenment thinker. He was act- no, acting no, no, no. out of a no. Christian understanding of power. <laughs> and and he, was, he was a good old black preacher who knew the prophets. He knew Amos, he knew Isaiah, right. and would often quote them. I mean, uh, I don't know nearly as much about Martin Luther King as you Americans do, but all that I do know, um, yeah, he was in that great Christian preaching tradition. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's one of the legacies of that whole tradition, which comes through the civil rights movement into the mainstream, thank God, that you don't regard the prophets as simply um, people who are ranting on, you know, eight centuries before Jesus, but you regard them as people who are predicting a new way of being human, which then Jesus himself brings to birth. Yes. And, you know, we needed to hear that. That's, but I hadn't heard that story. That's extraordinary. Oh, a que- is, it a, is it a good question? Is a good question to ask, what would the world look like if God was running it? <laughs> yes, yes. That's that's actually a question I've often asked when I was Bishop of Durham. Uh, it was it was the way I used to introduce um, various events. Uh, would, would get local churches in one particular area to say, you know, what would Durham look like if God was in charge? What yeah. would Newcastle look like if God was in charge, etc. And some people look rather sort of surprised and say, well, um, I suppose. Um, we'd have better coffee or <laughs> something <laughs> like that, or or maybe the trains would run on time. Or But then they'd get serious, and they'd say, well, would there be any sick people? Would there be any criminals anymore? Um, and then when you look at the Gospels, and you see Jesus saying, I'll show you what it looks like when God's in charge, and it doesn't mean that there's a big bang and the whole world stops. It means that people get healed. It means that people are having a party because God is doing a new thing. It means that people understand that uh, the, the God who made the world is a God of infinite love, who is loving them and forgiving them and healing them and bringing about new life. And these are signs of the kingdom. And then after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, of course, the message of the ascension, though many churches forget this, is that Jesus is now the Lord of the world. And people say, oh, well, 
he can't be because if you look out of the window, it's obvious that he isn't in charge because there's still bad things going on. But that misses the point, misses the point of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not that no bad things will go on in the meantime. It's that God is doing this new work, small and local, but very, very powerful, working from within and working through humble service and through signs of hope. And these are anticipations of the great new day, which is still to come. It isn't that we've already got everything that there ever will be, far from it. But there are, these are genuine advance signs of what it looks like already now that Jesus has taken charge and is involved in, 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 in leading this project. Yes. And that's what the Church is all about, being the people who are taking that project forward in the power of Jesus' Spirit. Uh, my, my friend, Father John Ricardo, likes to say, God wants his world back. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, and I would say, and he's taken it back in and through uh, Jesus' death and resurrection and the gift of the Spirit. See, the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, and one of the things which I think we bring out in this book, um, New Testament in its World, I think it's so important, the beginning of the Acts, when the disciples say to Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, well, it won't be quite like that, but here's your job. He's not saying, oh, no, no, we're not going to restore the kingdom to Israel. He's going to say, well, yes, that is happening, but it doesn't look like you thought it would. It won't look like a military takeover by a a renewed Israel under a warrior messiah. It'll look like you going out the same way that I went out. The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head and was despised and rejected, but look what he did. And the church had nowhere to lay its head and was despised and rejected and stoned and beaten up and so on. And within a generation... Um, there's Paul in Rome announcing that God is King and Jesus is Lord under Caesar's nose, openly and unhindered. Mm-hmm. And within another generation, the Roman governor in northern Turkey is writing anxious letters to the emperor in Rome to say, hey, we've got a lot of these Christians around. What am I supposed to do with them? Um, so, you know, despite everything, this is how it spreads. Let me ask you a, a question that's more philosophical, but I think people sense it, even if they don't articulate it. There's this big gap, this gulf, between um, our lived experience in the world, our existential awareness of what's today, and the affirmation of certain historical propositions, right? Um, Jesus died uh, in the first century. Uh, He was buried, and he was risen. Uh, how do how do statements about the past uh how are we supposed to understand that they are relevant for us today there seems to be this huge gulf yeah there is and many people in the modern church have tried to get across that gulf by saying well of course jesus was the second person of the trinity he was divine or whatever therefore whatever he did and said, and whatever happened to him kind of matters, because it's God's story as well. And, and I would say that's true, but that doesn't get to the heart of it. The whole of the Old Testament, which so many Christians find so difficult, is predicated on the assumption that God has chosen this people, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to be the means by which he is going to restore the world, put the world right, so that when we see the history of that people coming to its climax, which is what all four Gospels are saying, happened in Jesus, Um, then this means that the the long-drawn-out secret divine purpose for addressing and healing the world has now been accomplished, Um, and that it's, it's only really when you realize that that's how the Old Testament works, and that's how the New Testament works in relation to it, 
that you then see, that's why it's relevant. And so in a sense, to believe is to believe, uh, to believe the Christian gospel is to believe that that whole preparatory story is kind of retrospectively validated through the events concerning Jesus. Um, and uh, uh, so... Um, this takes this takes time. I mean, not everyone, as it were, comes in by that route, and some people become Christians without ever hearing about the Old sure, Testament, sure. but they pretty soon need to know about it, otherwise they won't understand what family they've joined, if you like, that this is the family that goes back to Abraham, and that the Abraham purpose always was to sort out the mess and muddle of the world. <laughs> That's good. Hold it there if you would, Dr. Wright. We'll come back on just the other side of the break. Yeah. My guest, Dr. N.T. Wright, uh, he is uh, author most recently of The New Testament in Its World, uh, which he wrote with uh, Michael Byrd. We'll, in fact, on the other side of the break, we'll talk a little bit about how that book came into existence. It is, I think, uh, without question, uh, the best introduction to the New Testament that's out there. I'm Al Cresta. We'll be right back. EWTN uses the power of radio to reach people whenever and wherever they're searching for answers to questions about their Catholic faith. EWTN radio is heard on over 500 domestic and international AM and FM radio affiliates. For a complete list of programs and how to hear EWTN radio, visit EWTN.com and click radio. EWTN, the global Catholic network. Back by popular demand is our trip through Portugal, Spain, and France. We start with a day in Fatima, following all the steps of the Little Shepherds. Santiago de Compostela, the ending point for the El Camino, is the home of the largest incenser. Visit the tomb of St. James the Apostle. Three days in Lourdes, which is quite indescribable. You'll have to come and see it to believe it. To learn more about your Ave Maria Radio trip, find the Ave Maria Radio travel tab at AveMariaRadio.net. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Millions of people have kicked off 2024 by making the traditional New Year's resolutions. Are you one of them? Are they related to your faith, your home life, your health? Let us know by going to AveMariaRadio.net and scrolling down to the poll of the week. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Good family discussions don't just happen. They take time. Family talk rituals help families be intentional about making real conversations happen. 
You need to be intentional if you want to get past exchanges like, what'd you do in school today? Nothing. Believe it or not, when the relationship between parents and kids is healthy, kids naturally want to open up to mom and dad. Kids want to know that their parents care enough to take time to listen and to understand how they're feeling and what they're going through. When parents make time to listen first, kids are more likely to willingly receive what mom and dad have to say. That's why family talk rituals are an important part of Catholic family life. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. N.T. Wright. He and Michael Bird have uh, given us the New Testament in its world, an introduction to the history, literature, and theology of first Christians. It's, um, well, it's a, it's a big book. It's uh, over 900 pages. And it, is, uh, it has a wonderful uh, style. It doesn't read like an academic treatise at all. Uh, <laughs> I noticed, though, in the part, the headings here, that uh, titles of some of your books, <laughs> Jesus and the Victory of God, The Resurrection of the Son of God, Paul and the Faithfulness of God. How, how did you guys go about writing this? This is huge. Well, um, it was Michael Bird's idea. I blame him for it. <laughs> he's, a, he's a very li- lively young Australian scholar, and I've known Mike for, for, for some time. He's a great chap. And uh, he is teaching undergraduates and, and seminarians all the time in a way that I used to do but haven't done for a while. Most of my recent teaching has been PhD students. And Mike was very much aware that he was wanting to try to communicate to his students um, many of the things which I have set out in my longer and more academic works, but he couldn't expect his students to read every page of my right. big fat books because <laughs> there's been several of them, etc. So he, he said to the publishers, oh, several years ago, five, six, seven years ago, wouldn't it be great if somebody could boil down Tom Wright's larger books into one single volume student handbook, which would cover everything that needed to be covered, but in a very user-friendly way. And the publishers said, um, we'll just have a word with Tom about it, but we think, yes, it's a good idea and you should do it. <laughs> so, And I, I heartily agreed with that. So Mike basically set to work and read pretty well everything I've ever written, I think, and, and turned it into this single um, strand. And then he sent it to me and we went to and fro and to and fro on email for about a year saying, now maybe this section should come here and maybe I need to rewrite that bit and could we say this instead of that and so on, as you'd expect with a joint sure. author book. Um, but it was, it, that was mostly great fun. There was quite a lot of hard slog as well because he's an Australian and I'm British, and so a lot of his sentences, I thought, heaven, somebody's going to quote that and ascribe it to me, and I'm not an Australian. <laughs> um, so I, I 
I, I'm afraid I toned down some of his um, splendid one-liners just a little bit. Um, but uh, we, we left, and, but his task as well was to add in all the charts and maps and diagrams and timelines and all that stuff, and lots and lots of pictures and artworks, which really make the book go. You know, I, when I open the book almost at random anywhere, there is all this interesting stuff which jumps off the page. Yeah, and my hope is that the average student will just be wooed into it and will just enjoy the enjoy the ride. Oh, I, I'm sure that's going to happen. It's a, it's a <laughs> magnificent book. Um, Good, thank you. Uh, let me raise a question that it hasn't been, it hasn't been talked about very much recently, but uh, in the 90s, there was all this hubbub about the Jesus Seminar and oh, yeah. this quest for the historical Jesus, and there's a long uh, you know, academic tradition about the quest for the historical Jesus. I think uh, most people who are not familiar with the academic debate wonder, well, why? what do you mean by that? I mean, are you saying that maybe Jesus didn't exist in history? What is, that, what is this well, quest for the historical Jesus about? Yeah, in every generation, there are one or two mavericks who suggest that Jesus didn't exist. And, and sometimes I get told off for saying this, but I really do think that discussing whether Jesus existed or not is like inviting an astronomer to discuss whether the moon really is made of green. Things, you know. <laughs> uh, actually, guys, we, we, we know it ain't, it ain't like that. We know that Jesus of Nazareth existed as surely as we know that Julius Caesar existed. And for similar reasons, that there are good literary sources, and particularly, as with many things in history, because of the effect that um, there were many Jewish leaders, would-be messiahs, prophetic figures, etc., in the first century. We know about them through the historian Josephus, and we have no reason to suppose he's making all them up. And in the middle of it, here is this figure who really does seem to have changed history in, in all sorts of ways, that there is this radical new movement which is launched within the first century, and it's one of the frustrations, by the way, in square brackets, as a classicist originally myself, that uh, the, the, the university and schools departments that teach classics, they really ought to teach Jesus and the rise of Christianity as a subject within that, because it does belong in the classical that's, world. And that's good. The fact that they don't usually do that, and they skip over, you know, they, they may discuss Cicero or Seneca. Right. Well, Cicero lived 50 before Jesus, Seneca lived a bit after Jesus, and they, their ideas are amazing and, and brilliant and so on. But right in between them stand these people called Jesus and Paul, who actually have been more influential in terms of world history. Why don't we study them in their right. context as well? Right. So, um, so in terms of the Jesus seminar so-called, that was a movement within one small section of kind of radical American uh, scholarly groups most of whom were fed up with fundamentalism, either Catholic or Protestant fundamentalism. They were mostly recovering fundamentalists. Um, and so they were determined, uh, and you have to remember they were coming out of the Reagan years where people um, on the right, just as happens now, sadly, were saying, um, oh, you know, Jesus is our hero, he supports our right-wing agendas. And they were saying, absolutely not, um, this won't do, etc., etc. So there was a lot of political spin going on, um, and also some fairly shabby scholarship. I mean, if you think back to the great American scholars of the time, people like Ed Sanders and Jim Charlesworth and John Paul Meyer and others, um, none of them 
joined in the Jesus Seminar. Right. The, the only real substantial figures who did were Dominic Cross and Walter Wink and Marcus Borg. And Walter and Marcus were kind of, uh, would have been seen as on the right wing of the Jesus Seminar. And they were just questing interesting, hungry individuals. Um, but most of, the, most of the members are, are not people of any great scholarly substance. Um, except, I say, Tom Crossan, a man I really respect, and I understand where he's coming from. Um, and, and he and I, I'm happy to say, are still um, good friends in a funny sort of way. Um, but I think the project as a whole was radically ill-conceived, which is why it, it gains no mileage now. I mean, isn't, isn't that issue, the so-called quest for the historical Jesus, uh, just a question about uh, how, what one can understand through historical research? Well, yes, it, it all depends, of course, what you mean by historical research. Right. Um, <laughs> and I've, I have another new book out, my Gifford Lectures, called History and Eschatology, and I have a whole quite long chapter in there on basically what is history, um, where I've tried to nail a lot of the relevant questions, because it's one of those people think they know what history is. It's rather like Augustine says about time. We all think we know what time is <laughs> right. until somebody asks you to, to describe what it is. And, you know, history is both what happened and what people write about what happened right. and how people research what happened. And, and what happened itself is a mixture of actual visible events and human motivations. And human motivations constitute a very important part of history. But you, but they, you can't see them on the video camera. Um, but unless you say, you know, why did this happen? Because people wanted to do X, Y, and Z, then you're not really doing history. Um, so uh, it, it is always complicated. But historical research then has to say, so what do we really know about Jesus? And we really know about Jesus that he went around saying, it's time for God to become king in the way that Israel's scriptures had always foretold. And it's perfectly possible to say as historians, what people in his day would have thought that meant, namely some revolutionary agenda for getting rid of the Romans or something like that. And then it's perfectly possible to say, well, Jesus seems to have gone around redefining it. He kept saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like, and that's what the parables are doing. That's what his healings are doing. That's what his feastings with sinners uh, is doing. And that the, these events and speeches and actions are all ways of taking the existing notion of kingdom of God, which as his Historians, we can get to quite easily. We can see what people were expecting. And then saying, Jesus is saying yes to the expectation, but radically revising the way in which that expectation comes about. Yeah. And it really looks as though, historically, Jesus believed it was his vocation to go to be crucified uh, in order to bring this about. Now, that gets you into some very dark waters indeed, as you'd expect, um, as the Church has always recognized. But then, if you believe, even for a split second, that there is such a thing as a dark power of evil, and that there is a good God who desires to overthrow that dark power, we should expect um, this to be a dark theme in itself. And that is indeed what we find, but there are ways through. So, in all those ways, I'm, I'm basically everything I've said is, is doing history is saying, let's look at Jesus himself, at his historical context, what it meant at the time, and how his own reading of Israel's scriptures contributed dramatically to his sense of vocation as to why he had to go to the cross and what Israel's God was going to do next as a result. Well, in fact, let's, let's stay with that a bit. Why did Jesus die? 
<laughs> uh, I once asked a Sunday school <laughs> class that exact question, and, and I made them write down the answers with no conferring, and it was very interesting. Half the class wrote, oh, he died because the Pharisees didn't like him. He died because the Romans were frightened of him. He died, you know, why, why, why? Because these people wanted him dead. And the other half wrote, he died to save us from our sins. He died so that we could go to heaven. He died to make us good. And, so, and, and we spent a very interesting hour putting those two sets of answers together. Because in the New Testament, they, in the New Testament, they come together. Um, it, it isn't an either-or. And when the Gospels are talking about the actual historical processes by which Jesus went to his death, what we see going on, and I think Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John all intend this, is uh, it's as though the forces of evil are gathering themselves together and doing their worst at this very point. You know, you see shrieking benighted souls in the synagogue. You see plotting Pharisees. You see angry Herodians. You see even some of Jesus' own disciples misunderstanding him and then ultimately one of them betraying him. Um, and you see the chief priests being jealous of him and Pilate being a typical muddled Roman governor. And it's as though all the forces of evil in the world are getting together, and what they do is they crucify this man. And he takes all that evil represented by them, and he takes it upon himself so that the rest of his people don't need to bear it. And, and thereby, the New Testament says he wins the victory. Somehow he has defeated the powers of evil. And the reason we know that is that he rose from the dead. And because if he hadn't defeated the power of evil, then he would have stayed dead. So the resurrection is seen from very early on as the sign that his death was a victory mm. and that it was a victory gained by him taking upon himself the evil that was otherwise going to fall on everyone else, if you like. So it's a victory through substitution. And the, the four Gospels say that in their own ways. Paul says it in his own way. Um, and that's right through the New Testament. Um. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Wright, for being with me. We're uh, to the end of our time You're very today. very welcome. It's good to talk to you. Yes, uh, I greatly enjoy uh, what your work has done. It's been a major influence in uh, my thinking about the work of Christ. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So uh, we'll talk again sometime, I hope. Yes, indeed. I very much hope so. Thank you very much indeed. Goodbye. Dr. N.T. Wright uh, with Michael Bird has given us the New Testament in its world, an introduction to the history, literature, and theology of the first Christians. I think I own probably all the major introductions uh, to the New Testament. And uh, I can say, well, there are many of them that are very good, by the way. Uh, this one is different. It's different in that it actually not only introduces us to some of the basic questions, but it also does the theology for us. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Father Benedict Rochelle. I must tell you, and from what I observe from very young people, all of these blasphemers, all of these mockers are in for a tough time. Because the devil bites his own tail. And I find among young people a growing reverence and longing for God. 
I find decline in the cynicism and skepticism around. Because it had to destroy itself. No one can live on being an enemy of God. It's too crazy. It's too absurd. It's too dark. It's too bleak. God is beautiful. God is holy. Why in the world mock God? The people you know and trust are on EWTN. Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life healthcare durable power of attorney, accessible anytime on smartphones, and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code AVE at checkout today, and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at MyLifeAngels.com. Thank you so much for being with me. And I want you to know that we always try to have follow-up information available for you in the Crested Guest Archives. We'll have, of course... Um, We'll have a conversation with Greg Popchick. Uh, we have follow-up uh, articles on that. Uh, also, the Wisdom of the Desert Fathers. Uh, we have the books in the uh, online library. And same thing with uh, New Testament in its world with N.T. Wright. The book will be available in the online bookstore. So uh, you can just go to AveMariaRadio.net. That's AveMariaRadio.net. And also, something to keep in mind, I mentioned that Wright is one of uh, leaders in New Testament scholarship. Uh, I should also mention a, a, a project uh, that's developed over the last 10 years called the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture. Uh, Dr. Mary Healy um, has headed it up, and uh, and also uh, Dr. Peter Williamson, uh, who have been guests on this program multiple times. But the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture is, for those who want to study the New Testament, uh, within the heart of the Church, I don't know of anything better than the volumes in that series, okay? Uh, this is a multiple-volume series, but I strong, there's beginning now, the uh, Old Testament is beginning to come out, uh, I think, later, well, next month. So, Catholic Commentary and Sacred Scripture, keep that in mind. Now, tomorrow, we're going to have uh, Carrie Gress with us. She's published a new book called The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. It's an outstanding book. And um, she'll, she's got incredible stories in it. And again, she uh, always has tremendous insight. She is author of that the project called Theology of Home. And so Carrie joins us tomorrow on The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. I'm Al Cresta. Thanks for being with me today. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.